Before Jesus heals a blind man in John chapter 9, the disciples ask him a very strange question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Unfortunately, our translations may have misguided us in regards to Jesus' response. So today, let's move some punctuation around and rethink what Jesus might have been saying about sin, work, and the Sabbath. Welcome to episode 14, a problem of punctuation. (laughs) Hi, I'm Greg Hall, and welcome back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. I'm excited about this week's episode because it's just another example of how our established way of reading the text might not be the best way of understanding what the author was trying to say. I also feel I must begin with a bit of an apology. I don't need to apologize to everyone, just the grammarians who are repulsed by this episode's overly punctuated title. I used an ellipse that definitely wasn't needed. A misplaced comma also found its way into the title. And then I ended with an unexpected question mark. So those with any type of grammar sensitivities They've probably already decided to skip this episode altogether. And for those of you that didn't notice the pejorative punctuation, I have but one question. Who was your junior high English teacher? (laughs) It's important to understand how much meaning a comma can bring to the words that surround it. And before we get into the text of this week in John chapter 9, I kind of want to just give you some examples Consider the following sentences and the use of commas within the sentences, okay? These are very common. I found them on multiple websites. You can find them too. The first one, very simple, three words. Let's eat, Grandma. (laughs) Yeah, obviously, I added a comma in there. You could see it if you could see the text I'm reading from. But that was a pause, right? But what happens if we leave the comma out? It's simply, let's eat, Grandma. And as much as we like having her over for dinner, that's not at all what we're talking about. So here's a second example. I love my parents, Lisa, and God. Just a very straightforward declaration of where my love is directed. But the use of an Oxford comma in this sentence really helps. It keeps the sentence from sounding like this. I love my parents, Lisa and God. The Oxford comma is that comma right before the word and in a string or a list of items in a sentence. And it helps clarify when items should be separated from each other. In this case, my love for Lisa and my love for God has nothing to do with them being my parents, right? So punctuation is important. We already knew that. And today we'll begin to see how a small change in punctuation in biblical text can have a ripple effect in the meaning of a passage. And this week, we jump into John chapter 9, which tells the story of a blind man who gains his sight, both physically and spiritually. So Jesus not only gives this man the physical ability to see, but also he reveals himself as the Son of Man, an Old Testament concept with just really deep theological meaning. It's an incredible story of healing, but today... 
we will be focusing on just the first few verses of the chapter because it's there where a comma and a period and moving some things around might make a huge difference and it's going to take the rest of our time. So let me set up the problem in the first part of this episode. And then as we move through, I'll discuss some possible solutions near the end. And we're just going to be reading out of John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. And as usual, I have the NASB in front of me, and that's what I'll be reading from. John chapter 9, verse 1, as he passed by, it's talking about Jesus, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So let's start with verse 2 and the disciples' question. They come to him, and there seems to be some preconceived notion within their culture that if someone was born blind, that was evidently the result of sin. Now, we wouldn't necessarily look at it that way today, right? We have much more of a medical understanding and what happens and what causes blindness. But in this first century context, we can assume by their question that there are some cultural things going on. Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man? this blind man, or his parents, that he was born blind. Going to get a little bit of help from the Expositor's Bible commentary from John and Acts. In that commentary, Tenney, the author, says this, their query, the disciples' query, Rabbi who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind, was based on a principle stated in the law from Exodus 34, 7. Then he quotes Exodus 34, 7. He, meaning God, does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. End quote of the Exodus passage, back to Tenney. They construed this to mean that if a person suffered from any ailment, it must have been because his parents or grandparents had committed some sin against God. You can cross-reference Exodus 20 verse 5 uh, for some more understanding there. To this, Tenney adds, they added the thought that perhaps he might have sinned before birth, whether as an embryo or in some pre-existent state. Such a concept appears in the rabbinical writings. So Tenney, in the Bible commentary there, does a good job of bringing in some of the cultural understanding of what might have been going through the disciples' heads. That cultural understanding also is kind of displayed down in verse 34 when the Pharisees later addressed this same man uh, after he was healed, and they answered him in verse 34, you were born entirely in sins. So from a Pharisaical standpoint, their opinion as well, and they would have been influencing the people, the general population, their understanding was that his blindness was definitely the cause of sins, whether personal or generational or some other combination of that. So that question is a question that we probably wouldn't be asking today. We have other explanations, medical reasons why people are born blind. 
And because that's not a question we're asking today, I think it opens up the chance for a misinterpretation of what Jesus is trying to say in his answer. Because we're looking for some sort of an answer, not necessarily for the question that we wouldn't be asking, the one they were asking, but we're looking for some sort of a theological answer in Jesus' statement that answers some question that we would have today about this situation. And that'll become a little bit more clear as we go through the passage. So let's do this. Let's just continue reading. I'm going to read Jesus's answer and insert some comments as we go the way it's currently understood. And it's that answer in verses three through five to the disciples that seems to be in two different parts. So in three, we see Jesus saying, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So traditionally, we understand this as Jesus saying, you know what, this blindness, the man's blindness is not a result of sin, but his blindness is there for a purpose. And what's that purpose? The purpose is so that one day God might heal him and display his works. And it's that response that we've learned to accept. But if you really think about the theology of that, it's somewhat troubling for some people. While we acknowledge that God can do really whatever he wants that's consistent with his character, it does seem somewhat troubling that a good God would cause someone, or depending on your theology, maybe just allow someone to be born blind and allow that person to suffer in a state like that for a long time, just for that one day later in his life when he would be healed. It brings up questions like, what about all the other blind people that never received healing? What then is the purpose of their suffering? So the way the first part of Jesus' response is punctuated, we've learned to accept it, and it's helped develop our theology, our concept of who God is. But there's something, when you look at it at face value, that seems a little bit off. Let's go to the next part of his answer, verses 4 and 5, where he says, We must work the works of God while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. This seems to all go together. It has a day and night theme. It has a reference to how he is the light of the world. And possibly the most common way that this has been interpreted is that the day and night doesn't speak to a literal day and night, but it's metaphorically, it's it's an analogy of day and night. It's the motif of day and night that John uses in his gospel. And it may mean something like the day representing the time that Jesus is ministering on earth and that the night would then be the time when he no longer is physically here after his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension to heaven. If you look at commentaries, you're going to see something along those lines, that Jesus in his answer has gone into metaphorical land and he's talking about the day and night motif and that he is encouraging people to do work while he's still there on earth because there's a time coming when he will not be there on earth with them. That may just seem like a really natural understanding of the passage because it may be exactly what you're thinking about the passage. But one problem with this interpretation is the we, the word we, in the beginning of John 9, 4. If that refers to Jesus and the disciples, it would suggest that when Jesus leaves the earth, the disciples would not be able to work here on earth, and possibly that Jesus himself would not be able to work even from his throne in heaven. 
But we know that the disciples, as Jesus promised in John 14, 12, continued the works of Jesus through the Holy Spirit's power well after Jesus's physical departure. And we know that Jesus's work continues as well in the heavenly realm. So that seemingly straightforward interpretation also has some logistical problems, to be sure. Got an example of this type of interpretation right out of the Believer's Bible Commentary of the Old and New Testaments. Uh, This passage written by MacDonald back in 1995. He says this, The time of his public ministry would soon be over and he would no longer be here on earth. This is commenting on this light and dark motif. McDonald goes on to say, this is a solemn reminder to everyone who is a Christian that life's day is swiftly passing by and the night is coming when our service on earth will be forever over. Therefore, we should use the time that is given to us to serve the Lord acceptably. So there are maybe some potential problems with the theology of how this passage is currently understood. Now, they're not huge problems. There's nothing a good pastor couldn't preach around. But the question is, is there any better option for how to understand what Jesus said? And as we dive a little further into this passage and the question and Jesus's answer, I want to take some time just to talk a little bit about translation. We usually think that translation refers to the bringing of words from one language into another language. And while converting language is the majority of work in translation, you might not realize what a large role punctuation plays in the meaning of words. The way we punctuate words within a sentence opens the door for different biblical interpretations. And to help us understand this a little bit better, I'm going to be interacting with a journal article by Bruce Metzger that he wrote back in 1993. The title of the article is Persistent Problems Confronting Bible Translators. It was in Bibsack, volume 150, page 273. And I'll be reading just a little bit from that journal article to give us a little bit more framework of what type of latitude we might have when we come to the biblical text when it's regarding punctuation. Metzger says this, The work involved in making a translation of the Bible is both exhilarating and exhausting. It's exhilarating when translators consider the benefits, both spiritual and literary, that their rendering will provide to their readers. It is exhausting when they confront various problems, some of them beyond the possibility of solution. Problems involved in translating the scriptures are many, he says. Some result in the presence of variant readings among the manuscripts of the Old and New Testaments. We've talked about that in past episodes. Metzger continues, others have to do with the meaning of rare words, as well as the uncertainty of punctuation of the Hebrew and Greek text. A little bit later in the article, he focuses in on that punctuation problem. And he says, once translators have decided which form of text to translate and what the Hebrew and Greek words mean, the problem of punctuation arises. In antiquity, it was customary to write Hebrew and Greek manuscripts with few, if any, marks of punctuation. The beginning of a sentence was not identified by a capital letter, 
Not until the 8th or 9th century AD did Greek scribes begin to be more or less systematic in the use of punctuation marks. Though exegetes can learn something concerning the history of the interpretation of a passage by considering the punctuation in the manuscripts, translators need not feel bound to adopt the punctuation preferred by either the scribes or the editor of the printed text. Furthermore, he adds, since there are no quotation marks in any of the manuscripts, the decision of where to insert these in the translation is totally in the hands of the translators. We mentioned that briefly back in John chapter 3, where the red letters continue well into the conversation and past the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And that's largely because the translators have determined that the quotation marks continue. But other people have suggested in that passage in John chapter 3 that Jesus' statement may have ended earlier and John may have then stepped in and started giving content that wouldn't necessarily need to be in red letters. Mesker finishes this way. Naturally, the opinions of translators as to appropriate punctuation will sometimes differ. There is no infallible rule to follow. Judgments must be based on what seems to provide the fullest and most appropriate sense in the context. So I'm going to discuss an argument regarding our John passage that suggests a punctuation change in the text. And it's important to understand that suggesting a change in punctuation is not heresy. (laughs) Although it may seem like it should be, right? (laughs) You're just suggesting we move punctuation around, which can change meaning dramatically. And we just need to understand, rather, that it's a part of the translation process to decide punctuation. It's not an exact science. And it could be a way to get a clearer understanding of the passage's original meaning. Metzger did have one last comment that I want to include from his article, and it's simply this. The position of a comma within a sentence can totally alter the sense. So I feel like we understand the passage the way it's currently punctuated and understood I also feel like we've delved into the translation process just far enough to understand that punctuation isn't a given. It's not 100% science. And it's along those lines that there's an option I'd like to present. It's an option proposed by John C. Poirier, who's got degrees from Duke Divinity and Jewish Theological Seminary. He is the chair of biblical studies at Kingswell Theological Seminary in Ohio and has published numerous articles in a wide range of theological topics. Poirier's proposal is covered over two articles that he wrote years apart. The first one was in 1996. It was titled Day and Night, The Punctuation of John 9-3. And then following that, 10 years later in 2006, he wrote Day and Night and the Sabbath Controversy of John 9. I'm going to put in the show notes all the details for these two articles so you can go find them yourselves. So let's just dive in. I'm going to be largely quoting from the second article because in the second article that was written 10 years later, he does a brief synopsis of what he proposed in the first article. So let's just move some punctuation around and see what happens with this passage the way Poirier suggests. He says this, The argument of my earlier article was that this passage has been wrongly punctuated. 
The comma now found in the middle of verse 3 should be exchanged for a full stop. In other words, a period. He continues, while the full stop at the end of the first verse should be exchanged for a comma. And then he just points out that the text originally lacked both punctuation and word divisions. Uh, That's something we haven't talked about yet. Because of a lack of uh, something to write on, they would push all their words together with no spaces in between. Not just no punctuation, but no spaces in between words. So translators really have a hard job when they go to the manuscripts that we have. It is like undoing a puzzle of types, and it's a grammatical puzzle that includes punctuation as well. Poirier continues, My reading of the passage associates the phrase that the works should be made manifest with the thought of doing works while it is day rather than with Jesus' dismissal of the usual explanations for the man's blindness. And I'll just break in here and describe what his proposal is. In Jesus' answer in verse 3, the way it's currently punctuated, it reads, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's all one sentence. And what he is proposing is that the decision of the original translators of this passage to include all of verse 3 in one sentence may not be correct. He suggests that there should be a period after it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, period. Let's separate that second part of the sentence off, and maybe Jesus is just saying it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, period. His blindness has nothing to do with sin, in other words. And then Jesus starts a new thought that includes the last half of the current sentence. And in the NASB, the way it's worded in the translation, it says, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. But if you look carefully at the translation, the words it was are in italics, which gives us a clue that those words were added in the English version, but they weren't there in the original Greek. So in the original Greek, if you take out the it was in the last half of our current sentence, it then says, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. He suggests that because the rest of the chapter has to do with the Sabbath day controversy, Jesus's reference to working in the day speaks directly to a literal day and night, and not a thematic idea of those two terms. And that's where we've landed in the thematic idea. It's safe to say that for any other day of the week back in Jesus' time, Jesus' statement made practical sense. Day is when people worked back then. Night is when they didn't work due to the lack of light. And that made sense for every day of the week, except the day that this particular event occurred. It was the Sabbath. And it's possible that Jesus was ironically reversing the pharisaical Sabbath teaching that one may not do any work during the Sabbath day, but rather must wait until the night. Poirier's reading would then allow the light of verse 5 not to reflect back on the day in verse 4, but rather as an introduction to the healing event that immediately follows. If you look at verse 5, "'While I am in the world, I am the light of the world.'" 
with our traditional understanding of this passage, it seems like that light of the world comment goes with the day and night thematically. But what we're ignoring is if you scroll back up into John chapter 8 and you get back to verse 12, this whole passage begins with Jesus making a similar statement. Verse 12 of chapter 8 says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And what Poirier says is that his statement at the very end in verse 5 may just be functioning as a bookend that also introduces the miracle that's about to happen. Poirier continues in his article, and he says, Scholars have often appealed to source theories to explain the fact that the healing accounts in John 5, 1 through 18 and 9, 1 through 41 are called works, in contradistinction to the signs found elsewhere in the fourth gospel. Oftentimes in John's gospel, Jesus' miracles are referred to as signs, but in these two places, his miracles of healing somebody on the Sabbath day are referred not as signs, but as works. And Poirier suggests that the change in vocabulary for those two Sabbath day healings might not just be a coincidence. It may be a literary decision by the author, John, to highlight a Sabbath day healing. This is how Poirier describes it. In so doing, they have overlooked the narrative and the more obvious explanation, which is that the term works was chosen for its correspondence with the charge of Sabbath breaking found in both of those chapters. Jesus' healing miracles in John 5 and 9 are labeled works because works are precisely what one may not do on the Sabbath. So let's Break away from Poirier just for a second and actually look at those healing miracles in John 5 and 9 in the context of that. In the first Sabbath healing in John 5, 1 through 18, there's a few things that are important to notice. It was the healing of the man at Bethesda. If you remember by the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool with five porticos and there were lots of sick and blind and lame people waiting there to be healed. And Jesus saw a man lying there, and he asked him the question, do you wish to get well? And then he commanded him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And it was the Sabbath on that day, verse 9 says. It's important to notice in this passage that Jesus instructs the man to do something that would break the Pharisaical Sabbath rules. He said, pick up your pallet. Think about it this way. If the man had just stood up and walked away, the red flags of him working, picking up his pallet, wouldn't have been raised in this passage. And in John 5, 17, there's a clear reference to this being work. When Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. The fact that that language is used on a Sabbath day healing is not a coincidence. So with that context, let's jump back into the passage in John chapter 9. The first thing Jesus does is to make mud or clay. And let me just ask the question, was there something magical about that mud? Well, no. <laughs> Jesus clearly didn't need the mud to heal the man. We can go to Mark 7:33, Mark 8:23 for examples of Jesus doesn't need any help with anything in the physical realm to heal people. So, it kind of prompts the question, what's the purpose? What purpose did the mud serve? And for that, we need to jump into the context a little bit, because according to the Pharisees, 
making mud was work. And I would suggest that Jesus decides to bring attention to his healing by openly working in the day. And then, I don't know if you've thought about it this way before, but then he commands the man to go do work by drawing water from a public pool. And that was forbidden on the Sabbath by the Pharisees, even though it was on that very day that the priests were walking down to that same pool and drawing water for a water libation up at the temple. Jesus is sending the man to a very public place on a very public day and commanding that he do what was considered to be work on a seventh-day Sabbath. He healed the blind man in a way that made their violations of the Sabbath as visible as possible. Poirier says it this way, There has been a lot of speculation over the years about what day and night mean in the context of John 9-4 usually settling on a scheme in which the transition from day to night is marked by Jesus' departure from his disciples at the crucifixion. Although a metaphorical interpretation along those lines resonates with the style of John's writing, Poirier suggests that a more likely candidate for the meaning of day and night is not far to seek within the narrative. Day and night refer to the literal transition of day into night, a transition that holds significance for the ensuing Sabbath controversy, as it is precisely that transition with traditional Jewish understandings of the Sabbath that allows one to resume working. So, all that to say that the answer Jesus gave in response to the disciples' question may be more complicated than it first appears, but rethinking the passage's punctuation and context may bring us closer to the original meaning in its original context. Changing a comma to a period, as we've seen, has caused a ripple effect, and that changes the theology of his whole interaction. It suggests that Jesus is okay with doing work on the Sabbath. It suggests that maybe the work that we should do on the Sabbath is the work that God would instruct us to do and not be constrained to the rules that men have put in place around that idea. Well, that's all I've got for today. In the next episode, we'll move on into John chapter 10, and we'll learn more than you ever wanted to know about taking care of sheep in the first century context. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on the Rethinking Scripture podcast.